Welcome back to episode number 209 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast for building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we have on Jennifer Hatt, writer, publisher, and communications consultant. And we're doing episode, I guess, four in this series on the ripple effects of Westray. In this particular episode, we're covering Westray in the media, and that's why we have Jennifer on today. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the Dust Safety Science Podcast today to chat with us. Thank you, Chris. Um, I appreciate the invitation. I'm really excited about this episode. As the listeners will know, this Ripple Effects of Westray miniseries is something we started doing on our, I guess, 200th episode. It's something that's really near and dear to my heart. And I know it's something that Jennifer's really getting behind and helping to support as well with Vernon Terrio and, and the others that we'll have on the podcast about this topic. So for background, if you're new to the show, thank you for tuning in. I know we will have new listeners as we do this series on Westray. We may have people coming in that are not our typical listeners. In this podcast, we cover everything around combustible dust fires, flash fires, and explosions. Safety aspects, engineering, inspections, government programs, case studies. And we do like to get into the side of how this impacts families and communities and those that suffer loss from these industrial catastrophes done that a bit over the last 200 episodes. And then in this ripple effects of Westray, we're digging deep into this coal mine explosion that happened May 9th, 1922, and tragically took the lives of 26 workers that were working in the mine in Nova Scotia, Canada. We did cover sort of an introduction to this series in episode 201. And then I would really encourage you, if you're interested in this topic, to go listen to episodes 202 and 203. Those were interviews with Vernon Terrio, a survivor from the Westray coal mine explosion, we covered his experience before the explosion, during the events, during the recovery, and the 30 years since that incident happened, that uh, tragedy happened, and the challenges associated with that. We really dove into a whole bunch of different topics, but in particular, the mental aspects of surviving these type of industrial disasters and the toll it takes on people. We talked about survivorship guilt. We talked about challenges with getting reemployment, getting retraining, getting back into the workforce and, and many, many other topics. And that's the reason why we started this series. It was to help Vernon with his second book. He has a first book, Westray, My Journey from Darkness to Light, which I encourage you to go get on Amazon or we gave instructions on how to do that in the episodes 202 and 203. And again, we talked all through how we wrote that book. It took a long, long time to put together for many reasons. And this second book is even more of a challenge for things that we talked in that previous episodes. So really the purpose of these series is to put together stories around Westray, stories around the people that were involved in, you know, experienced that, get those perspectives, and then also get perspectives from the communities, the survivors, and people that were involved. And when I say survivors, nobody, tragically nobody survived the actual exposed incident, but other people that worked at Westray that weren't on shift that day like Vernon. So a long way to say is I do appreciate Jennifer coming on. She's going to share her experience with Westray and in particular media coverage, because that's the kind of road that I believe she was involved in when Westray happened. Um, we're going to let her tell her story here with the goal, again, to capture the information and put it together with the other stories we collect for Vernon's second book. So Jennifer, that was a bit of a more involved introduction than we normally have, but this is a really important topic. So I want to make sure the stage was set correctly. I think before we get into looking backwards, Maybe you could share with the audience what your role is today and just what kind of work you do. And that might provide context on, you know, how you're involved with this project overall with Vernon, myself and others in terms of this ripple effects of Westray. 
Sure. Thank you, Chris. I earned my living as a writer, which means I have the advantage of being able to uh, create different jobs, various careers, sometimes almost day by day. These days, my primary activities are freelance writing, consulting, and publishing. So I've worked with some authors to publish their books. I also work with self-publishing authors to help get their creations from idea or manuscript into the final form. And that's what brings me in contact with uh, this particular project. Yeah, I appreciate that. And Vern and I looked for a couple different, before we came to the podcast, as a medium for collecting these stories. We had all kinds of wild ideas. At one point, I was like, I'm going to have to write, like, I'll, I'll write the book, but then I tried to figure out that the time required is quite immense and many other iterations. And this one where we do the podcast and have somebody's help to kind of put it together is the next step that we're trying to figure out. And I'll be honest, and I know you will be as well. We don't exactly know how all this is going to play out, but we know we're going to record the interviews. We will have transcripts and we're going to figure it out from there. More than just your involvement in writing and editing and publishing, which is really important to provide experience and and hopefully even efforts on this project. My understanding is you actually were involved in Westray. You went through that experience. Maybe tell the audience where you live today (laughs) and then kind of take us back to Westray coal mine explosion where you were at that time and just what, you know, what your experience was living through that. Sure. I moved to New Glasgow in 1989 after graduating from university. And so my entire working career has been spent in Pictou County. And uh, at the time of Westray, and I will back up, I guess, to 1989 when I first moved here as a brand new reporter, Westray at that time was a little blue building and a lot of hope. One of my first interviews was with the then minister provincially who was working to make Westray a reality in the county, the Honorable Donald Cameron. And I remember at first being really impressed that he actually answered his own phone. And he turned out to be one of my first interviews moving forward. And on my way home, I was told, stop by the blind site and get a photo of Westray. And that's what I found, this little blue building that was kind of sitting there waiting for something to happen. And I was new to the county and new to this project, but there was that sense of waiting for something great to happen. uh, And that stayed with me. Now in May of 1992, I was 24 years old. I was working at that point for the daily newspaper in New Glasgow. And uh, my apartment was just down the road from the news office. And I remember distinctly, it was Mother's Day weekend, and I was, I had booked the time off. I was set to go away the following week for vacation. So I I had the weekend all planned. I was going to clean my house and pack and all of that. And I vaguely remember laying in bed and hearing sirens in the distance, a lot of sirens, uh, more than I had ever heard for anything else. And I opened one eye. It was still dark. I'm thinking, oh well, doesn't matter. I'm not working this weekend. And I stretched and rolled over and went back to sleep. Then a couple hours later, my phone rings and it's my managing editor. All he said was, there's something going on at the mine. Uh, We need all hands on deck. So the entire news office was being called in to start working on what we didn't know. We had reporters at the mine site 
my job was to work the phones. And my early assignments there were to speak with the mayor and former miners and draggermen in Spring Hill about their experience with mine disasters. And even at that time, you're just, you know, we're, we're deadline writers. So you focus on the story at hand. You don't think about the big picture necessarily. You're just working to get the story, any story, until you know exactly what's going on. And as the day unfolded, you know, the predictions were coming in. We as a news team were doing our best to keep on top of things from a variety of angles. The Saturday edition was held back as long as we could to try to get as much detail in as we could find at that time. And the decision was made to print a Sunday edition, which was something that had never been done ever. And meanwhile, you know, we're in the newsroom and we're we're sort of in our working world, taking information as it's coming in and then, you know, translating it into stories that we can then put into the publications. It took a few days for us to, to, you know, really settle into how the community was feeling, I think. And as for how ourselves were feeling, that took a lot longer still, because again, you're, you're in work mode, you're focused on what you need to do. And at that time, it was generate stories and keep people as informed as we possibly could. But it was interesting, you know, the various reactions, depending on who was following the story at the time and their connection to the mine site. I remember getting a call late Saturday afternoon. This is the day that the mine exploded. And at this point, you know, We'd been at our desks for probably at least eight to 10 hours. And the woman on the phone wanted to know where her paper was. Why was her paper late? (laughs) Yeah. And I, as tactfully as I could, said, there's been an incident at the mine. And I just left it at that thinking, well, that's pretty self-explanatory. And she replied, well, yeah, but why is my paper late? (laughs) So it took a while for, I think, when you you talk ripple effect, and I have that image of a pebble dropping into a a pond, it took a while for, I think, many in our community to grasp the depth and severity of what had happened that morning and what the long-term effects would be from that. For the next few days, We were, that's all we did, basically, all I remember. And this was 30 years ago. And it's interesting how some memories are crystal clear, like that woman on the phone looking for her newspaper. Yeah. And how other things are are, are simply a blur. Yeah, I can imagine. And I, and I was just going to say that, that for the, for that time, my, my job remained working the phones from the newsroom. I didn't go to the mine site. I didn't go to the media center that had been set up in the community hall across the road from the mine site. At first, it was because my assignments didn't need me to be there. But once the story broke nationally and internationally, and, you know, literally large groups of media began descending on the little community of Plymouth, I felt like I could do more 
from where I was in our newsroom than being part of that out there. And then our focus had to shift somewhat because as hometown newspaper, people were looking to us to be able to to lead in the coverage of the story. At the same time as the local media outlet or and one of them, we lived in this community. We knew these people sometimes personally. Once you know, the story wound down and the news cycle shifted, whatever that looked like, the visiting media would be leaving and going on to their next story. We would remain because we were a part of the community in which this was happening. And that created a challenge in terms of how we could cover the story in a sense. We were mindful of the relationships that we had built over the years with people and organizations. And we wanted to honor those and we wanted to be respectful. It was an important story, but we did not want to be one of those outlets that got the story at all cost. And as a result, it was difficult to stay ahead of the news wave because there were those outlets who did, I will say, use unique ways that perhaps we would not to try to get interviews, staking out rooms, staking out bus stops. You know, that was their job and and that was the way they did things. We didn't want to do things that way. And even if we did, we didn't have the luxury of being able to move on to another place in time once the story was done. Yeah. So it it was stressful to try to be that information source while being mindful and compassionate to all those involved. But yet that is a unique opportunity for hometown media as well. So as challenging as it was, it was also inspiring in some ways to be able to do that. It was almost something that we could do to not only cover the story, but to perhaps be there for those that were in the midst of it. The kind of way you think you broke things down, one, you can kind of tell you, you have a, a very good story and tell background with the, the little blue building with lots of hope. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. you know, before and then during and after. And I think that's kind of where I'd like to take the conversation because you're touching a lot of important bases. And maybe I'll get the reason why I think that's a good, a good approach. And then, then we'll get into it. One, I want to be tremendously respectful as well that the during people are going to be listening to this podcast episode that aren't our traditional listeners that have lived through Westray. And there's probably a lot of that that they experienced, right? Small town media one way and then large media companies coming in descending on Plymouth, which, you know, I've, I've been there several times and I can just imagine. There's those things and I'm hoping the same thing that you said where reliving that experience can actually be in healing in an area of being involved in doing your part to, to help the process. And I have a couple of stories that maybe we can share around that. But anyway, I like to, yeah, before, during, and after, because I think before the hope, the small town, the industry, the, the building of something new, the jobs, the employment, the money, the taxes, the tax dollars for the community. And those are all things that come up time and time again for large scale dust explosion incidents, whether it be, Didion Milling or Imperial Sugar or others that have occurred in the past. 
many times these are the largest employers in that community. And this certainly was, I think, the case with Westray, and maybe we'll get to that in a second. But that that level of hope is is generally there with these large scale catastrophes that occur. So I want to touch on that. I want to touch on during, because you talked a lot about a lot of important things like holding the paper back to get enough information and then trying to get the right story, but the local news sources wanting to get in a way that's cognizant, that's aware and, and understanding of the people that are there on the ground. And then the, the challenges that is, and that's important to us because we have a whole incident database. We tracked 1,500 fires and explosions since we started. And 98% of that is the kind of news coverage that you're talking about in the moment, really pointing into the stick stuff's going on. People are trying to, to do their job. <laughs> it's just a tremendously hard area. And then for us, it's good to understand what's going on there so that we can use that when we want to think, well, you know, the, the news outlet's doing the best they can, but what experience do they have to relay the information from really technical background? Because so our, our audience is very technical, so they'll want to know what's the ignition source and what's the causation and, and what happened first, second, and third. And just realizing that that's probably not the type of information that's going to come out of a same-day news reporting. Even if they do an interview with somebody who's knowledgeable, that person's on the ground boots on the ground doing work and discovering as they go along. So there's that piece during. And I think there's a lot of value there because our audience will have consultants and investigators and experts listening to this that are on the other side of that fence, proverbially speaking, we'll say, but on the other side of the fence in that they'll be working with news sources, working with media outlets and trying to get the best information across and then after. And that's, you know, since, since Westray, what's going on there. We may even have split this into two interviews. We'll see because we talked, because <laughs> that sounds like a lot of groundwork to cover. But let's let's go back to step one. I mean, when you saw that blue building, can you share what like year that was or how many years before Westray was? And then you don't have to go into too much detail, sure. but a little bit about how that built up to what was Westray and what the, the community feeling was there, because that's something that will resonate with a lot of the incidents that we've seen in the past. Right. Well, that would have been in August of 1989. Yeah. So that's when I when I moved to to Pictou County and, and got my first job. So three years, as a reporter. say, two and a half Correct. years before yeah. Australia, the explosion. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and at that time, Westray was just the name and conversation. And of course, you know, in 1989, you know, it had been more than 30 years since there was coal mining of, of any degree in Pictou County. And there were a lot of folks who remembered the previous coal mining uh, history. They lived it yeah. and were concerned at that time that, you know, Westray either wouldn't happen or shouldn't happen because it was dangerous. But on the flip side were those who thought this, this meant a new era of economic development for the county, that technology existed to make mining safer than it had been the generations before. And that's where it sat, kind of with those various points of view and with, you know, the average citizen in the middle going, well, okay, Pictou County is no stranger to large scale projects that haven't happened <laughs> and as well as some that have. So it was a, a, a topic of conversation for a few years until it started to get some traction. Yeah, I bet. And how did it look like once the mine opened? Because it wasn't that long before the explosion happened that the mine was up and running, right? No, no, it was, it was open a matter of months. 
And yes, I mean, once it opened, it, it seemed like, well, it, it happened. And there was gainful employment. There was, you know, economic benefits coming out of that. Visually, you know, the mine site looked modern and impressive. As you're driving into Plymouth, you drive under a train track and the trestle had been all redone in stonework with the Kura Resources logo front and center. Yeah, it became part of the landscape very quickly. So Jennifer, yeah, where I'd like to go from here is sort of this during piece. And one thing I'd like to contrast is because you have this experience of working through a large scale disaster like this, uh, boots on the ground with media, and then you've sort of, you know, had one foot in in that for you know a big part of your career. So how do you think things might be different today? Because we would we'd have many people listening to this podcast episode that are are inspectors, um, boots on the ground, people that show up when a catastrophe happens like this. And they're gonna be trying to work with the media and even trying to understand how what they might say, the ripple effects of that, if you if you will, continue with this ripple effects theme. Um, any kind of insights that you think we could take from from your experience through Westray and even how things might be different or similar today? Well, it's interesting. When I reflect back on my time as a reporter and Westray in particular, you know, be mindful of the fact that this was the era before cell phones. There was no internet. There were no wireless devices. I believe our, our early reporters on the scene were using a payphone to phone into the office to give updates. And research was done on paper. We were flipping back into our, our archives, you know, mining stories and, and mine disasters in Pictou County and beyond. For our background information, there was no Google. And you don't miss what you don't know. But at the time, yeah, you, you literally come into your office blind and your eyes become that which you can read on paper or those whom you can call and talk to. So the, the transmission of information, even once you find it, was slower than we're used to today. Yeah, today would be near instant, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And you rely very heavily on people who will talk to you or, or who you know you can reach because that was really the main information source that you had that and what you could witness with your own eyes. And again, you know, for those who went to the mine site, I mean, they, they could see the external devastation, but, you know, who knew what lie within. And um, for those of us back at the office working the phones, we were there in part to try to reach out and generate our own information sources, but also to capture that which was being funneled back from the mine site. Yeah. In, in thinking about, you know, who I spoke with, and I'll, I'll be honest, I don't remember a lot of what I did sure. <laughs> in those days. A lot of the specific tasks, I knew that that's all we did. And when we did get to, you know, take a break or grab some sleep, you went to sleep with it and you woke up with it. Sometimes it wasn't the images or the information that you knew. It was thinking about what you didn't know. And what would you find out? And would today be the day that we learned, you know, what they would find underground or who they would find? Well, you kind of mentioned, right? Like you're, you, it wasn't like you were coming from, out of, from another country and, and covering this in the media. This was your home. Those were your That's friends correct. and colleagues and 
that was your future changing before your eyes, everyone's future, right? That's the one of the biggest challenges comes up with, with this type of loss is that sense of, yeah, that sense of loss of what the future is. If you lose a, you know, a a child or a a loved one or something, it's like you had this vision in your head of, of what life looked like. It would be the same for each person in Westray. Yeah. For sure. And the loss that we sat with was very much about the loss of human life. Yeah. The potential that, you know, 26 minors were unaccounted for at that in that moment. And I don't think any of us working in the local media had encountered such devastation so quickly. Well, you wouldn't normally, right? Like that's a, um, I, I would hope it's a that's once right. in a lifetime but that's that's almost one of the points is when this happens in a small town, which it very often does, as we I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we talk about emergency response plans from a technical, like an engineering assessment background and whether or not facilities have them and that sort of stuff. But there's not really like an emergency response plan for how people feel in the community <laughs> about what's going on. Like, and, and maybe we should start working on putting one together or something. But it's just, you know, it's it's like that's just such a hard thing, especially when it impacts so many people at the same time. That kind of transitions into this this after piece. It's like we had this hope, we had this, you know, the the mine opened, there was gainful employment, there was, you know, economic benefit, and then this tragedy and devastation. And there's there's probably a lot of layers to it. There's immediate, there's the week after, there's once all the reporters leave and things are quiet again and people have to sit with it. And then there's the next five, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years afterwards. And I'm sure we're not gonna cover all that groundwork and in this in this discussion, but I guess that's probably a good place to kind of leave this off on today. Is anything you pick up on from that after effects you think would be interesting for the audience or important? That's probably a better word. Important for the audience to hear about from living through one of these you know catastrophes in in your in your community. Just that any loss of life, especially in an industrial setting, touches everyone. And you had mentioned survivor's guilt. And I can remember feeling um, kind of akin to when I, you know, that very early morning when I heard the sirens and took comfort in the fact that I wasn't working, so I didn't have to deal with that. I remember feeling at one point grateful that no one in my family was a minor and then feeling awful because I felt that. And interesting, I had mentioned that I was slated for vacation, and this would have been less than a week after the explosion. And I went to my managing editor and I said, should I cancel it? And he, he looked at me and he said, no, if you have an opportunity to take a break, you should take it. Almost as if he knew that this was going to be an ongoing story long after I got back. Sure is. And for the years that followed. So the interesting thing was I, I did take my trip. I, it was to Washington, D.C. And I am standing on the subway platform at the airport waiting for the train. And on the radio, I, it, what you could hear piped into the station was the voice of then Westville Mayor Mary Daly talking about Westray. And the effect on the community. And it hit me that you never escape something like that. Whether it's in your memory, whether it's in your work, whether it's because you have a direct loss, or whether it's because it's in the community that you're a part of, 
there is nowhere that you can go that it doesn't touch you and touch others. Yeah, it's it's one of the main reasons why we started doing, you know, follow up on incidents and, and why I think this this ripple effects of Westray is important because the effects are so much I mean we we track like things like injuries and, and stuff burner, but that's those are like first level <laughs> analytics, first level metrics. The second degree, first degree, that's a better word. And the second degree impact, the third degree impact of these sort of things is tremendous. And then it really focuses back on on the community, all those impacts. And that's some of the points we're trying to bring out these sort of stories. I do I do tremendously appreciate your time today, Jennifer. I appreciate the involvement that you have with what we're trying to achieve here. I know it's hard after going through some pretty emotional discussion, but I'd like to circle around just for the last uh, couple of minutes here just on this this project with Vernon and the hopes of a second book covering the mental aspects of industrial disasters, in this case, Westray. Um, anything that you want to leave the le- the listeners off on in terms of, of this project? Any hopes that you have or any things you'd like to them to do? Like this, where, where are things at in your head for, for this existing project with Vernon? Then we'll close off for today. Well, I think what attracted me to this project was the opportunity again, to focus on the human element in this story. Because as you had mentioned, it can be very technical. Sometimes I'm very political. But for me, the power is always in the human element. That has always been for me the most important story. So the opportunity to be able to showcase and preserve the experiences of those who went through this catastrophic event really yeah, brought to light to me the power of what the written word and a book can do. So I'm pleased and honored to be a part of that. I think the voices of the people that will be shared in this project can really bring home the importance of prudent workplace safety. I think with Westray, one of the lingering regrets was that, you know, the question remains, was what happened there preventable? Could West Ray have been the hope? Could it, could it have realized the hope that people had for it when it was first conceived and constructed? Was there a way that it could have been prevented? And, you know, we'll never know the answer to that question, but moving forward, could we learn from that to maybe ensure that other workplaces can be as safe as they can be? And realize their hope. So, you know, there's an element of preservation of history so we can learn from it, but also that element of invitation to anyone who would be informed to, you know, look ahead to making workplaces continually safer for the individuals within it and the communities. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, those kind of elements make a lot of sense to me, right? Preserving the history learning and the you know the, the question of could it be prevented and then more importantly well of, of equal importance i guess it's better to say can we prevent the next one and i i am a true believer if it's not obvious by having 209 podcast episodes that communication plays a, a really important role in that and then this is for me a conduit to be able to communicate out westray the story preserve those those elements and also a, a conduit and a way to learn moving forward. So I appreciate your involvement. I appreciate coming on the podcast today to share your stories. Again, I really appreciate Vernon's interviews back in episode 202 and 203. 
And I'm really looking forward to, to move forward with this project. I'm coming into 2023 now because we're just recording this at the end of the last year, although it will be coming out um, early next year. So thank you again, Jennifer. I'm sure this is not the last time we will be talking. Well, I can guarantee that. <laughs> and I'm not sure, but it, it probably won't be the last time we get you on the podcast either to discuss this project. So thank you so much. And I appreciate all the work that you're doing. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate the work you're doing as well. Thanks, Jennifer. We'll be talking soon. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Jennifer Hatt, writer, publisher, and communication consultant. And we've been talking about Westray and covering Westray in the media and really going through her experience having living through Westray as a reporter at the time. We talked about, you know, early 1989 when she moved into the Glasgow area, came on as a reporter and covered Westray at that point was just this, this blue building with a lot of hope in her own words, a little blue building with a lot of hope. And covering some of that and how that, you know, built itself up to the mine, the mine came out and then had this tragedy uh, months after mine got up and, and, and running. We talked about a lot of background around working with media, well, maybe not working with them so much, but the experiences of living through a tragedy like this, how it impacts everyone and how it impacts everybody a bit differently. And the challenges that come into something like this where it is a multinational scale event. So you have people coming in that may not have the same perspective as those that are living close and also after everybody leaves and you have that kind of void and we talked about that with Vernon Terrio in the previous episodes when it's like okay we, he, he just like Jennifer went to work when this thing happened just did their jobs and then eventually the recovery ended and they had to go back home and and then there's just a void <laughs> and you got to figure that out figuring that void out is part of this project overall in terms of providing tools and understanding and stories to people to some support mental health after these type of tragedies. And that's why these stories are so important. Uh, I do want to say thank you to Jennifer again. Thank you to Vernon. You can find the previous episodes if you go to dustsafetyscience.com slash whatever the episode number I said was. So 202 would be the number two, number zero, number two. 203 would be the same thing, ending in the three. You find those previous episodes there. We will link to them in the show notes for this episode, which is dustsafetyscience.com slash 209. Um, thank you again, everyone, for tuning into this episode. I do want to say if you have a story to tell about Westray, you want to be involved in this project, if you just want to talk, you can always email myself, chris at dustsafetyscience.com. Um, you connect with Vernon. We've had his contact information on the previous episodes. Um, you can also find him on Facebook and talk with him there. It'll be great. You don't have to come on and do a podcast interview. You can We can do it via just text. We're going to collect all those materials up for the second book on the ripple effects of Westray that we're working on with Vernon through this project to get it done now. So again, I want to say thank you to everyone for listening today. Hope you have a safe and productive week ahead and I appreciate everything you're doing. Industries handling combustible dust, make them safer every day. Or if you're tuning in from just understanding the Westray story, I do appreciate your involvement and your attention and your time to help preserve this and also to help to um, you know try to prevent these tra- type of tragedies in the future. So I'll go ahead and thank you again. <laughs>